public perception of Christianity? What is the public perception of the Christian faith? Let's see, we were to go down just now to St. Paul's en masse. And if we were to ask the crowds outside St. Paul's what they thought Christianity was all about, what would they say to us? What would they say Christianity was all about? Well, perhaps one sure answer we would get is that Christianity, that Christians, what we seek to do is to please God through religious activity and through morally upright behavior. Don't you think that would be a sort of popular, common answer? What's Christianity all about? Oh, well, Christians, they seek to please God, worship God through this, through sort of religious activity and through being good. Now, hopefully, you and I in here, we know that that is not the case. That we know that Christianity is not so much about what we do in here for God. What's Christianity about? It is surely about what God has done for us in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But here's the thing that we need to think about. We need to face up the fact that we can kind of slip back into that false caricature of Christianity very, very easily, can't we? Like even if we have been Christians for many, many years, even for decades... There's still within us, because of sin, some sort of weird yearning for the terms of the covenant of works. Isn't there? You know, we sort of slip back into thinking about our relationship with God exclusively in terms of what we do. And our activity, our religious activity, and, and our works. Now what's that? What is that? I mean, what, what do we call that? You know, that, that obsession with the external things of Christianity. What, does it got a name? What do we call that? We call that legalism. And this morning, friends, it's that. That's our theme. It's legalism that we are going to consider together just for a short time. So, with these things said, what I would ask you to do is please, as a congregation, to turn back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, to please have uh, these verses in Mark 7 open in front of you. And we'll notice a few things here in the text. The first thing I think we see here in Mark 7 is an indicator of legalism. That's the first thing that we see here, an indicator of legalism. Here's our problem. We know that sin blinds us to sin, doesn't it? Sin blinds us to sin. So do you see the problem? Like, how do we know this morning of this theme, this area of legalism, how do we know if that is a significant problem of our own hearts? You see it? Well, I think what we've got here is an indicator, a test, if you like, if that is the case. So what is that? Well, what is it we're dealing with here in Mark chapter 7? Well, this section is different to what's gone before, isn't it? Like previously, if you've been here for the last number of weeks, previously we've been looking at the miracles, some of the wonderful miracles of Jesus. This is different, isn't it? Here we're now looking at his teaching. 
And I think it's probably fair to say we could call this a conflict narrative in Mark 7, couldn't we? Because do you see in verse 1, do you see who it is that Jesus is speaking to here? Who is it? Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees. And he's the scribes and the teachers of the law. And did you notice as well, same verse, do you see where it is that these people have come from? Where have they come from? Jerusalem. So I guess you can see what's happened here, can you? This religious elite, you know, the big guys, the big wigs in Jerusalem, they're becoming unsettled. They're becoming increasingly concerned by the fame and the following of Jesus. So what is it that they do? They send these guys. What will we call it? Let's say they send a garrison of Pharisees down to where Jesus is to try and sort of bolster the local religious opposition to the Christ. So we understand who it is. You've got these Pharisees dealing with Jesus here. Now, it's actually what these Pharisees, religious leaders, what they do here that we need to consider. But first, I just want to say this. A couple of years ago, this is true, a couple of years ago, the Dalai Lama visited Inverness. You couldn't make that up, could you? The Dalai Lama, it's true, the Dalai Lama went to Inverness. Now, what was noticeable uh, about that event in Inverness were the people who went along to hear the Dalai Lama. I know some of those people. And let me tell you, they, they do not have a spiritual bone in their body. You know, these people would never darken, never in their lives darken the door of a church. I mean, here were flocking to hear the Dalai Lama speak. Now, you see what that is, don't you? This sort of general kind of interest, the sort of general intrigue in what this supposedly sort of spiritual man had to say. Now think back to Mark chapter 7 and the Pharisees. Is that not what we would expect to see here? I mean, think about the characters and the people we're dealing with. We're dealing with Jesus. You know, a man preaching the things of God and a man demonstrating the power of God and who else are we dealing with? We're dealing with the Pharisees And what are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be God-men. Wouldn't you expect to see a sort of interest from them? You know, assessing Jesus' preaching in light of their scriptures, maybe. Maybe expecting to see that, right? Or even a, a personal assessment of his call for repentance. We'd expect to see some interest, right? Some intrigue in what he's saying. And what do we get? Look at verse 5. What do they say? What do they do? They arrive, they speak to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? You see it? Why is it? They just complain about the religious activity of other people. You see it? There's no genuine spiritual interest in this preaching. What do they do? They moan. <laughs> And they moan about the external behavior of others. Now, wait a minute. What are we trying to do here? Can you remember? What are we trying to do? We're trying to establish whether legalism is a problem of our own hearts. I'm telling you, that there, that's your test. Can I put this to you as a congregation? Can I put this to you as individuals? Which is it that you think about more in your life? 
Do you give more thought time to the religious activity and religious feelings of other people? Or do you give more thought time to your own feelings before God? Really though, on which is it? Which is it that we are more concerned with? Are we more concerned with the, the feelings of others in here? Feelings in their church attendance. Feelings in their Christian life. Are we more concerned with that? Or are we more concerned with our own feelings and weakness and sinfulness before God? Friend, for you, which is it? Because I'm, I'm saying to you this morning, if it's the former if it's the first of those, if we are more concerned with the external religious behavior of other people, then that is a sure sign that legalism is a problem of our own hearts. So we see here an indicator of legalism in these verses. Moving on, we see a second thing here, though. We see a rejection of legalism. A rejection of legalism. Now, when my brother was young, little kid, he went through a very, very strange phase. And I was thinking about this in the tube on the way here. I was thinking, oh, he probably wouldn't want me to talk about this publicly, but I'm going to do that anyway. Um, he went through his phase when he was a little boy where he would wash his hands about 200 times a day. Uh, you know, he was getting to that age where little boys and girls learn about germs. And obviously it sort of blew his mind and kind of freaked him out a little bit. And so if he was out on his bike or if he touched a door handle or a toy or something like that, he would just run full belt to, to sink and spend ages washing his hands. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Like in Mark chapter 7, when the Pharisees are complaining that the disciples haven't washed their hands before they eat, is that the sort of thing that we're dealing with? I mean, is it some sort of pharisaical germ phobia? Is that what we're dealing with? You know that that's not the case, don't you? Like, you see that their complaint wasn't about hygiene. This was a complaint about religious purity, wasn't it? A purity before God. You see, do you remember what we said in a, a recent sermon? We said that the Pharisees, they tried to bubble wrap the laws of God. They would take a law of God from, from Scripture and they would wrap it up in hundreds of other sort of man-made laws in order to try and protect that law of God. And do you see that that's what's going on here? See, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, God had said that priests were to ceremonially wash their hands and when? before they sacrifice to him in the temple. So what do the Pharisees do with that? Well, they take that law, they wrap it up in all these other laws, and before long, what are they doing? They're commanding that not just priests, but everyone ceremonially wash their hands, and not just in the temple, but when? Every single time they eat. So do you see the point here? The disciples are being accused not of breaking a law of God, they are being accused of breaking a law of man by the Pharisees. Now, I would ask you to consider this. I would ask you to consider how Jesus responds to this accusation. Now, would you say it's... Is it fair to say that our Lord is angry in Mark chapter 7? He's angry 
isn't he? I mean, he rejects this hand-washing criticism. Do you see what he calls the Pharisees? He calls them hypocrites. And I think in this intense reaction of Jesus to the Pharisees, I think what we are given is glorious. Because I think we are given here an insight into the true nature of worship. How can I say this? Well, what does Jesus go on to say? He says to the Pharisees, he, he says that their worship is what? Do you notice the word? Their worship is in vain. The Pharisees worship in vain. Now, why? Why? What does he go on to say? Because their hearts were not engaged. Their hearts, he says, are far from God. Now, what did I say at the beginning of the sermon? What are we about to do? We're all afterwards, we're all going to go there to St. Paul's, are we? En masse, and we're going to speak to the crowds there. Well, I ask you, friend, is that, you know, what Jesus says there, is that not what those people need to hear? Like, does our world not need to hear the truth about Christian worship? And what is that? That Christian worship is not about ritual, is it? I mean, Christian worship is not about do's and don'ts. It's not about ceremonially washing our hands. It's not about routines. What is Christian worship about? What does Jesus say? It's about our hearts. It is about our very core, our very being before God. That is the essence of Christian worship. Now, if we are a Christian here this morning, we know that our hearts are only ready to worship God. How? Through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this, don't we? But there is still a lesson here for us. Friend, can I ask you another question this morning? Do you think by your mere attendance here at London City Presbyterian Church today that you are engaging in the worship of God? You hear me? By simply being, by simply coming through these doors today, even as a Christian... Do you think you are necessarily engaging in the worship of God? Is that the case? Maybe you say to me, Andy, that's exactly what I think is happening. I'm a Christian and, and I'm here at church. Therefore, man, I'm worshiping God. Is that really the case? I mean, is it not true for some of us this morning that, you know, so far today, on this Lord's Day, up till this very point here, isn't it true for some of us that we have barely even thought about Jesus? We've barely even thought about God. And we come at church routinely. What is it for us? Is it not for some of us a ritual? This is what we do on a Sunday. We get up and we go to church and we do it in an unthinking way and it's mechanical. But what is Jesus saying here? Worship must be of the heart. Do you see, friend, what it is that God wants from you today and here? He wants you in the worship of his name to be thinking on him, to be meditating on the great things of God, to be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be loving God, not just for what he's done, but just for who he is. The perfect, the majestic, the holy, the loving, the triune God. What we're learning in Mark chapter 7, it's massive. 
we are learning that worship is not about routine. And it is not about ritual. That worship must be in Christ and it must be of the heart. A third thing we see here is an example of legalism. So you following the section here, we've seen the Pharisees complain bitterly about the external religious behavior of the disciples. We've seen Jesus rebuke them for what is a error about worship. Now what Jesus does next, and you'll see it in front of you, what he does next is provide an example, doesn't he? There's an example here. There's a kind of illustration of just where these Pharisees are going wrong. <laughs> and the nation centers around what's called Corbin. Now don't, can I say to you, don't let yourself down today. Like, don't greet me at the door and sort of say to me, you were getting awfully political in the, political in the sermon today and you called the labor leader a, a, a Pharisee. Not that Corbin. Okay, different, different idea. Jeremy Corbin's a different idea of Corbin that we've got here. Now, what was that? What's this Corbin? Well, in the first century, if you were wanting to take something and set it aside for temple worship or temple service, you declared that thing to be Corbin. So you following the idea here? If you want to take, maybe it's a, maybe it's some money, maybe it's a bit of property, and you want to set it aside for the work of God, then you would declare, designate it, you would name that thing to be Corbin. Now here's the thing. Jesus' point in this example that he's giving here, his point is to show the danger of elevating tradition over and above scripture itself. Now do you see how it works in the example? Can you see what was happening in the first century here? Like Many of us have got elderly people in our families, don't we? An elderly mother or father or elderly grandparents. Did not the example, do you not find it atrocious? A horrible thing. Do you see what was happening in the first century world? Religious tradition was saying it was okay for you to take what should have been used to support your elderly parents, to take that away from the support of your parents... And to use it in temple service. If you've got elderly people in your family, do not find that repulsive. Is it not? To take away religious people. Religious tradition saying it's okay to take away that support from maybe elderly, maybe infirm people. And to give it over to the Pharisees. And what does Jesus have to say about this? Well, Jesus says, no. I mean, this goes so clearly against the fifth commandment. To honor, honor your father and mother. This tradition, it goes against scripture itself. Now here's the point. That there in the example is the most obvious way that legalism shows itself in the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you say this morning, maybe you're sitting in church thinking, well, legalism isn't a bit, it's not a problem in my heart. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're thinking, well, legalism isn't really a problem for the church these days. But I would ask you this, 
does tradition, does not the tradition of men, is it not a hugely prominent thing in the life of the church? I mean, you know what we're like, don't you? You know, if you've got Christian parents or forefathers, you know what we're like. We love, we cherish the ways that our parents and our forefathers like to see things done in the life of the church, don't we? We love that. And we cherish those things. We hold very dearly to to the views that our parents had about what people should wear at church or how people should conduct themselves on a Sunday or how they should conduct themselves in the worship. We love those things now. Most of that, of course, is fine, and it's, and it's right, and it's good. But do you see the message here? We must not cling to those traditions so tightly that they supplant the Word of God in our hearts. Do you see that? We cannot elevate those, those traditions of men so that they stand over and above Scripture as our rule of, of faith and life. Because if we do that, what happens? What does Jesus say here? It nullifies the very Word of God. If we take these traditions, if we raise them up above Scripture, what is it we're doing? In effect, we are distorting the very message of the Gospel itself. So you see it? We've, we've seen an indicator of legalism, haven't we? And then we've seen from Jesus a rejection of legalism. We've now seen an example of legalism. The last thing, and briefly, we also see very clearly here the error of legalism. The error of legalism. Now, when I was a child, a young boy, I am ashamed to say this, but it's true, that we had a family friend uh, who used to to terrify me, used to scare me. And the reasoning's awful. Um, just as a little boy, I didn't want to go to this person's house because this poor lady, she was inflicted with a, a horrible, uh, debilitating, life-threatening illness. And as a young child, inexplicably and nonsensically, I thought that if I went to her house and if I was around her, that I might catch this, this disease. It was impossible, could never happen. But I was scared. Like I thought if I went to her house, you know, if I maybe drank from a, one of her cups, if I was around her, I thought that I myself might become infected. That's horrible, isn't it? And it's the foolishness of, of youth, is it not? But what we need to appreciate this morning is that that is how the Pharisees viewed impurity before God. Do you see what I mean? They thought that you could catch sin. Like they thought if you went and to the wrong part, if you went to a Gentile area, or if you touched the wrong thing, if you ate the wrong thing, lo and behold, if you should be in the company of Gentiles, they thought you might become infected. That you might catch sin. Now, into that ludicrous understanding of impurity, what happens here in Mark chapter 7 is that Jesus makes a pronouncement here that is going to shake 
first century religion to its very core, to its very foundation. I want you to get it. It's in verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. Like Jesus says, now, it's so important. He says, not just to the Pharisees, but he says to the whole crowd. What does he say? He says, nothing outside a man can make him unclean. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying that it wasn't what he ate. It wasn't what people touched. It wasn't where people went that made them unclean. So what was it? Look at verse 21. Please look at verse 21. What does he say? He says, no, it is from within. Look at the next part. Out of men's hearts comes impurity, comes wickedness. Do you, do you see the significance of what he's saying here? He is saying that impurity before God. He is saying that sin fundamentally is not an external thing. It's not about actions. It's about what? It's about the heart, he says. Do you see, sin fundamentally is not about what we do. It's about who we are. Now, this is massive. So I just want to end this morning with two very, very simple implications of what Jesus is saying there. Now, you get these implications. One, if sin is of the heart, then friends, all people, everyone, everywhere, we stand impure and unclean before God. Now you see that as an implication, don't you? If sin is not an external thing, if it's not about what we do and the mistakes we make and where we go, if it's inward, if it's internal, if it's of the heart, then everyone... Everyone, everywhere, we stand impure before God. And I need you to see that that is the concise and consistent testimony of Scripture. Isaiah 64. Listen to this. We have all become like one who is unclean. Or Romans 3, 4. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see the truth of this? If sin is inward, as Jesus says, what is sin? It is a universal disease. And then the second implication is perhaps even more pertinent. Friends, if sin is inward, if it is of the heart, then can I say to you this morning, legalism is a complete and utter waste of time. Isn't it? See, what is legalism? By definition, what is it? It's an obsession with the external things, trying to become clean externally. And what are we seeing here? It doesn't work. Sin isn't an external factor. It's it's inward. It's internal. Do you see what that means for us? It means we can do anything. I mean, we can come to church every week till our death. And you can give up everything you have and every penny you've got and you can sell it and give it to charity. And you can read the Bible every day till the cows come home. You can do any external thing. And what? Sin is inward. That's what makes no difference. What does man need? Man needs inward renewal. So let me say, if you are a child of God this morning, don't you leave Mark chapter 7 rejoicing in what is the true message of Christianity. Because what is the message of the gospel? 
What has Christ done for us? He has taken upon himself our impurity and our sin. Yes, but what have we received by grace? What do we get in return from the Lord Christ? What do we learn in Ezekiel? What does God promise his people? I will give you a new heart. Do you see it? How we should rejoice in the good news of the gospel this morning, friends. Through repentance, through faith in Christ, what is ours, what is given to us? Inward renewal. We are given in Christ a new heart of flesh. So friends, I say to you, as the people of God, we should rejoice in Christianity. We rejoice in biblical Christianity. Let's go from here and and seek to worship God differently. Let's worship Him in everything that we are, in everything that we do. And how? Ritualistically? Mechanically? Dryly? No. Let us worship the Lord Jesus Christ. How? From these new hearts. Let's pray.